Hi, folks. Steve Urban here. Today's episode of the Rutterflex podcast is sponsored by Marketing 360. My good friend J.B. Kellogg and his team do such a fantastic job for us and so many other companies. Marketing 360 is the number one platform for small business, and it's everything you need to grow your business. If you need marketing support, I really encourage you to contact them at marketing360.com slash writerflex, and we'll add that link to the description of this episode for easy reference. On today's episode of the Writerflex podcast, we are pleased and honored to have guest Barbara T. Bauer. She's the director of the Women's Investor Network at Rockies Venture Club. An experienced executive with large and small organizations, now working directly with entrepreneurs and angel investors. Barbara Bauer on the Rider Flex podcast today. How you doing, Barbara? I'm great. Glad to be on. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, really. Uh, a privilege to have you here. Outstanding career. I mean, all anybody has to do is you know, look, look you up on, on LinkedIn and look at your profile and go, wow, okay, uh, let's ask her for some advice. <laughs> so appreciate you, you, you being here. Um, so for the listeners real quick, how about some personal background? Maybe, um, you know, where you grew up, some family stuff, and then where you went to school, things like that, before we get into the professional world. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Northwest Missouri in a very small town, so it was sort of the classic uh, leave it to beaver upbringing where I knew everyone in town. And I can remember telling my mom one day I was going to run away and she said, well, go ahead. Betty and Sally will let me know where you are in town anyway. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. How many people in your graduating class high school for high school, do you remember? About... A hundred, I think. A hundred, okay. Pretty small town. All right. Yeah, I think the town was about ten thousand in those days. Gotcha. All <clears> right. <throat> All right. What'd your folks do? Uh, my father worked for the Department of Agriculture, the Farmers Home Administration, and so in the summer times, I would go with him on visits to farm families where he would assess their crop potential and work with them on their books and budgets. And I learned to drive by driving his old Pontiac on those farms. How about that? That's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Any, any siblings? Uh, one sister uh, who was a year older. Okay. All right. And your mother, stay at home mom, or did what she do? She was a kindergarten teacher until uh, children were born, and then she was a stay-at-home mom, but I think remained a kindergarten teacher actually through her entire life. Oh, uh, is that, okay. <laughs> yeah, which is really good because I got the benefit of all that, you know, how to, how to help a kindergarten kid actually uh, learn and be prepared for life, so it was a good experience. Okay, very good, and then somehow you decided to major in physics, uh, I walk. You must have been super smart in high school, right? You, you, like a four point I mean, talk to me about it. <laughs> I always did get good grades, and in in high school in particular, I really loved math and science. And I see. so, uh, I went to college at a Jesuit university, St. Louis University. And okay. uh, I remember in my freshman class, my sister was a year older, and she was also going to that university. 
And she was literally the perfect student. So when I was in my freshman algebra class, the professor said, oh, Barbara, are you Jane's sister? And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm dead meat here because she got an A on literally everything. Wow. And so I had thought about majoring in math, but um, given that she was majoring in math, I said, okay, can't do that. <laughs> this isn't gonna work. And so I thought, okay, I'll major in physics. It's, it's much better than chemistry. Chemistry is messy. You know, organic chemistry was way too, you know, difficult, yeah. I thought. Physics, I thought, was actually easier, and I really liked it. So. Okay. Okay. When did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, so when you decided that, were you thinking, okay, I want to be, you know, career-wise? Did you have a plan? No. Uh, and certainly in those days, um, you know, a thousand years ago, the options for women were secretary, nurse, and teacher. And I was confident that I didn't have the patience to be a nurse. I probably didn't have the appropriate interpersonal skills to be a secretary. Um, so a teacher was probably what I thought might happen. But by the time I got through undergraduate school, I decided to go to graduate school. And so I went to get a master's in physics at the University of Kansas. And when I finished that master's degree and started interviewing for jobs, I realized that, I mean, during the master's degree, it was clear to me that theoretical physics was going to be much more suitable for me than doing some sort of laboratory experiment. I think I nearly electrocuted several of my lab instructors in those days. I would always partner up with some guy who was in double E <laughs> and I would write up the theory of the experiment and he would actually hook the stuff together. I can't screw in light bulbs. I see. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> and so when I finished, um, as part of the master's thesis, of course, if you're doing any kind of research work in, th in physics or other sciences, you are automatically using computational technology. Uh, and so I got interested in software technology and when I finished my master's degree, decided to get a PhD in computer science. Ah. And in those days, the, the PhD programs in computer science were, were fairly new. They frequently were quite hardware-based. Uh, so you might come out of an engineering program into that kind of PhD program. I see. And I had a wonderful thesis advisor. I was at the University of Kansas, uh, and I was doing a research project called Generalized Homomorphisms of Finite State Automata. And I could not begin to tell you at all right now what that was all about. <laughs> uh, uh, that's pretty good. But I ended up at that time also getting married and moving uh, with my husband, uh, who had been in graduate school in physics with me, okay. to New Jersey. And we both worked for Bell Laboratories. Ah, so that was, the, okay. Wow, now, now, had you been to the East Coast before that from, from St. Louis? I had, I had traveled a lot. My parents were, were dedicated travelers. Oh, and so okay. I, of course, had, had been to New York and Boston and okay. uh, Atlantic City and never lived there. And so it was quite different. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially, especially back then. But you, at least it wasn't complete shock. You had been in the area before. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, very good. Went to work for Bill. Okay. And then... 
So uh, kind of give us, give us the, you know, kind of walk us through a little bit of your career and then into, you know, some of the things you're doing now. Just give us a little, little history and into some of the stuff you're doing now. And obviously, you know, talk about, um, you know, the boards you're on and RVC, yeah. but, but a little early career first, if you don't mind. Not at all. I mean, the experience at Bell Labs was wonderful because Bell Labs hired smart people. And um, most of my colleagues there had masters or PhDs. And so it was a heady intellectual environment. But after a while, it was clear to me that I actually wanted to do something that had more practical applications. And so as the Bell system was breaking up, um, I decided to find a job in one of the operating companies. Okay. And uh, US West at the time, was starting an organization called Advanced Technologies. And so I was one of, I think, the first 25 employees in uh, that Advanced Technology organization. Wow. And there was one other sort of interesting anecdote around that. When I did the interview, I was really interested in the job and I was pretty clear that they thought I would be a suitable candidate. And I said, but I'm actually, now separated, almost divorced, I have a child, you know, if you're going to hire me, I have a trailing ex-spouse, because I wouldn't separate my child, you uh, know, I see. halfway across the country. Gotcha. And fortunately, um, my ex-husband has a very similar degree, similar background, PhD in physics, and um, he was maybe the 26th employee at uh, Advanced Technology. So we both moved out here, and that way uh, we could share custody with Matt. I see, and that's when you moved to Denver? Right. Gotcha. Okay, no, no, pressure, no pressure for your son with both parents having PhDs. No pressure or anything. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I think for a long time, uh, he was pretty clear that we worked too hard and we weren't that interesting. <laughs> so, you know, maybe he'd do something differently. Uh, and and uh, he did end up working in a very deeply analytic field. So he's a uh, portfolio analyst uh, for uh, large uh, portfolio companies. Ah, I see. Okay, well, I'm sure you're super proud of him. You have grandchildren? No, no grandchildren. A very small dog that everyone's very fond of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. So then, um, yeah, walk us into, you know, obviously, obviously you, you, you became an executive, you had several executive roles. Um, talk to, talk to me a little bit about what it was like to, to enter into a leadership executive role back when, you know, the percentage of women, women being in those roles was even tinier than it is now. What was that? What was that like? I'd love to hear a couple of experiences. Uh, and what that was like for you? Well, you know, from from graduate school on, you know, I was I was always in a fully male environment, and, and usually the only female. Um, wow. And and you know, I can remember going to meetings at US West with the network organization, and because of the role I had at Advanced Technologies, I Technologies, I was frequently in those meetings with network vice presidents. It, when, when that was definitely a very uh, old boys club. And so it was just a matter of 
knowing my stuff, um, being sure that I was on point relative to what the priorities and needs were of that very male-dominated organization. And it was a wonderful experience, actually. Mm. Oh, good. I mean, there certainly was lots of, you know, if I were to go back and list all the forms of discrimination, there were lots, but it was also a tremendous opportunity to learn from people who were so deeply experienced in this particular industry sector. And one of the things that was so impressive to me at the time, telephone companies rise to challenges. And I think maybe the first year or two I was in Colorado, there was a flood and of course, uh, telephone lines and everything else were destroyed. And it was a wonderful opportunity to see this uh, very large and complex organization really put their resources to bear on solving immediate and urgent mm. problems. Mm. And, you know, whereas in big organizations, there are always uh, situations that cause tension the telephone companies were a great example of how people pulled together to achieve a common objective and just got rid of all those turf wars or political issues. Really, really. Yeah. Wow. You know, as I looked at, as I looked at your career and the timeline of your career, um, I thought about, you know, just kind of where you were and what was happening in life, I guess at those times, and I was comparing it in my head. I was, I was thinking about um, what it must have been like to be a female executive um, back. I'll use, the, I'll use the TV show Mad Men that I watched. <laughs> and I remember, I remember watching Mad Men. And I, and I remember thinking, my God, is that really how it was? Like, we really, like, that's really how women were treated by, I mean, really? I, in my head, I was like, Surely, some of this is fictional. Is this was it really that bad? I'm kind of I want I want to know from you, like like was it that bad, or or talk to me? I'm just curious. You know, I I can give you a funny example that shows it really was that bad. But then I'm going to counter that with some uh, other okay. examples of okay. uh, what happened. Uh, in between uh, getting my bachelor and master's degree, I actually worked for IBM in Kansas City, Missouri. And I was with a team and there was a lead salesman and I was a systems engineer that supported the technical okay. uh, work. And there was an opportunity to do a demo of a new product, a new application. And I remember getting a call from the salesman say, saying, Barbara, you know, we're gonna do this next Thursday. And you know, when, when the clients arrive, we want you to sit at the table and register them. <laughs> and I was actually standing in an office on the phone, of course, a physical phone at that time, not a cell phone. Right. And I was in the middle, actually, of, a, of several secretaries in the organization. And I remember saying, Wayne, I'm your systems engineer. I'm not your secretary. <laughs> Good for you. And, uh, and actually, then I thought, oh, I have just said something in the uh, middle of a group of women. <laughs> <laughs> who I really value and respect. Uh, oh, so boy. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I made the point to Wayne and then hung up and apologized to them. Uh, and, and, and I think, I suspect 
women my age who had the same experience also experienced what happens once you got to know uh, a particular group of men or colleagues. It's, it, whether you're a man, a woman, or an alien from Mars, it really ends up being all about your credibility. Good. Yeah, that's great. Good. And so once you have the opportunity, and, you know, of course, today we still have incredible systemic unintentional bias. And our experience the last few days with Black Lives Matter is just the yeah. biggest, most mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. tragic example of that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we still have the occasion to, or we still need to be intentional, call it out, make the appropriate suggestions about how to become or become better, do better, mm -hmm. improve. <clears throat> you know, intentional, I like that. And I like that word. I, I'll give you an example of our own podcast of just um, how that applied to us. When we first started the, the podcast, all of the guests were, were guys. Um, and it wasn't really like, it wasn't really like, I mean, I didn't sit down and go, okay, I'm going to have a podcast and only have guys on it. It's just, that's who my friends were. And that's, that's network. that was my network. Right. And so I just started, my friends started calling me saying, I'll come on the podcast. And I was like, okay, cool. And you know, then the next, the next thing I knew we had whatever it was, 15, 20 guests and somebody you know, somebody pointed out she she was a she she has been a guest on the podcast, so I won't mention her name, but she called she called me and she goes, Hey, she goes, Hey, you know, you know you haven't had any female executives on your podcast, right? And 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 I said, Wow, I said, you know, I you're right. I and I and I and I remember thinking, damn, I didn't mean to do that, but yeah, I guess that has happened. And then we did have to make an intent intentional uh, moves towards ensuring that we were uh, 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 aware of that and, and and making moves to be more diversified in our in our guests and now and now and now I think it's almost well we've, we've had a bunch of now you know great women on the yeah. podcast now but I do remember thinking I need to be intentional about this or else it's just going to keep going this way and I right. we had to, and we had to make moves to do it and so I love that word I do think that's important. I also, tell me if you agree with this. I, I, I think in some cases there's people, and I just use myself as an example, like they end up surrounding themselves with their network and it's all people that look and look like them, right? It's all either white, white males or whatever group they're in. And I think sometimes it's just like, that's their network. It's like they didn't really have a strategy or a, or a mean intention. It's just, it just, just happened. And then they're there and they're like, oh shit, I need to <laughs> make some adjustments. <laughs> what, what's your thoughts on that? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Is that, is that how it happens kind of unintentionally? And then they make, they need to be intentional about yeah. fixing it. Yeah. I, I think we all form either professional or personal networks that are people who we know and like. Yeah. And yeah. that tends to be people who, in some sense, are like-minded or who we perceive to be like-minded. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's what ends up with, uh, for example, corporate public boards yeah. having only men. Fortunately, now there's incredible shareholder and institutional shareholder pressure to change that. There was an interesting uh, data item that one of my 
colleagues who, uh, with whom I work on getting more women on boards, there are more men named John who are board directors in corporate public boards than there are women in corporate uh, public boards. I, I, uh, I, I have heard a bunch of stats like that. I've heard other, yeah, when I hear stuff like that, I'm just like, wow, I just can't, can't even hardly believe it. But I think it's because I, I don't think about it or I haven't made intentional no. moves to think about that's, it or fix it. That's exactly why you have to constantly make this intentionality present in what you're thinking about talking about and i want to bring this up to date for a minute to what we're doing in rocky's venture club go for it uh one of the things which is really interesting about rbc and i think germane to our conversation today rbc has mostly men investors you know maybe about 14 or 15 percent are women investors and so okay. However, the investments into ventures that have been made over the last five years, 50% of those investments in ventures are made in ventures that have women in the leadership team, founder, co-founder, CEO, CEO. Great. And that particular result, so having a balanced portfolio, 50% women-led, 50% men-led, with a mostly deeply male set of investors is really unusual. Mm. And so I've been over the last several years as I've worked within RBC, tried to understand how this good result happens when it doesn't happen in other places with that same male dominated demographic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's, there's some helpful insights here. Um, how did you make it happen? Yeah, how did you ha- go for it? So uh, the leadership team within RBC, Peter Adams, Dave Harris, uh, have intentionally been active at trying to increase uh, inclusion and diversity. Great. And so, for example, at our uh, twice a year capital conferences, the speakers and the panels are balanced between men and women leaders in this early stage, you know, community. So that's intentionality. The second one is there's a, uh, a smaller group of men investors who are very clear and very experienced in investing in women led companies. And when they are in the room with a group of other investors who have less of that experience, that eliminates a lot of the unintentional bias that would emerge if they weren't there. Mm, mm, really good, really good stuff. Congratulations on having the end. Yeah, I, I bet there's very few that uh, groups or organizations like RVC that have a 50-50 split like that on investments. I mean, great job, congratulations. I don't know of any. And I think yeah. there's one final distinction or one final um, necessary, but perhaps not sufficient condition. RBC over the last five years with Peter and Dave's leadership, we have really focused on education, both for investors and for entrepreneurs. And by the time a woman or a man gets in front of our investor group seeking funding, they are credible. We have had the opportunity to run them through Pitch Academy, which we're doing this afternoon. Cool. We've probably worked with them, seen them, given them feedback over okay. six months to a year. So there's the investors now know that 
there's not going to be yeah. a question of, is this a credible deal? Yeah, that's, but I love that. And by the way, that's exactly how we work at Rider Flex, our recruiting firm. Like we, we have a super thorough vetting process that includes me video interviewing candidate finalists before right. we, before we ever put them in front of the client. Right. And, and it's a very similar situation where we're just like, okay, if we're going to put a, a candidate in front of a client, <clears throat> they're going to be fully vetted. They're going to have the stamp of approval and, and the client's going to feel very comfortable. Same thing. I think that's great. Can you, by the way, we didn't do this. So can you do this real quick? Can you give the listeners the two or three minute elevator, you know, Rocky's venture club and yeah. just tell them what Rocky, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's fascinating and important to understand this. Rocky's Venture Club is actually uh, the longest running angel investing network organization in the country. It got started in the early 80s. And about seven years ago, our current executive director, Peter, took it over. And its purpose is to create the community of active angel investors working with entrepreneurs to invest in these early stage companies because we are uh, confident that this is the best economic development leverage that these investor dollars can achieve. Mm. And so if we are able to attract any of your readers who are accredited this is a, an SEC requirement that means you have to have either a million dollars in assets, not including your personal residence, or about $200,000 in annual compensation. And, uh, and, and, for the, and for the listeners, that's what they mean by accredited uh, investor? Is that accurate, yes. just for the listeners? Okay. Yes, <laughs> yes because the SEC um, realizes that this particular asset class is uh, risky uh -huh. and, and, and we don't want all of our citizens losing their residence uh, <laughs> venture. Having said that, I wanna caveat that with, I think the, the common assumption that, you know, nine out of 10 early stage companies fail is just really incorrect and misreads the actual data. And, and by the way, what's the definition of failure too, right? Like, what does yeah. that mean? If they, if they made it three years, well, does that mean they failed? I mean, what, yeah, what's the definition? I don't know. <laughs> well, and, 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 and I think that's one of the things that is important to understand. You have to sort of unpack this factoid mm -hmm. uh, because when that, when that particular metric is calculated, it's, it's counting any registered business that stops being a business and the yep. the awful part of that because it creates this misunderstanding yep. is that for example in rvc we create a limited liability corporation for every venture in which we invest okay so that's a registered llc most likely in colorado when that company exits which is very successful from our perspective they, they get count. acquired Most all the much. investors make money that LLC is uh, dead. Yeah, yeah. And it's over. And they're counting and so, these stats. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow. That's one of the you know, companies that failed in that count, which is why that count really is interesting. Uh, interesting. not, you know, it's, how, it's a myth. How many, can you talk and give us details just real quick? Uh, so how many investments 
does RVC make a year on average, or do you want to give us any kind of yeah sure. stats? And keep in mind that the typical investment in this angel stage is probably between five hundred thousand and a million and a half. Is that per individual? Is that per individual or the group of angels that invested in a company? That's a group of angels in okay. investing in a company. Okay. And if RBC is leading the deal for a local founder, for example, RBC investors might contribute some or all of that early stage investment. And we collaborate with other angel organizations across the country to fund uh, companies in Colorado. So a dollar invested by a local investor here can attract four or five dollars from around the country into a Colorado venture. And the typical um, target for the investment, the typical startup is are they are they pre-revenue, after revenue? Are they are they ten employees? Are they a million in revenue? What's what's the average? It's it's usually a small number of employees. You know, typically might be at at the at one end of the spectrum. You know, just two or three. Okay. Uh, they typically have some traction. And that can be revenue from customers, but it can also be if you're a medical device, uh, a clinical trial. Uh, it can be, uh, we just uh, did a funding round for an investment where the revenue was really quite small, but the number of users on the platform was a million. Okay. And so, you know, that particular venture had taken a strategy to increase the brand loyalty and then began to um, extrapolate on revenue. What percentage of pitches do you invest in? So do you see a uh, hundred people and one person? Yeah, what, what's your percentage? I'm just curious. So over the year, uh, those of us who are in on the RVC staff, and that's Peter, Dave, Kevin, Emily, and me, we probably see between 1,500 and 2,000 ventures that come across our desk. A year? A year. So that's, all right, let's call it 2,000 pitch decks, but that's not 2,000 pitches. No. Okay. And in fact, a number of those that come across might be really quite excellent future businesses, but maybe not attractive to an angel investor. Okay. okay. It might be a company that um, has uh, a very large capital requirement. So it might be appropriate for a different sort of financing. I understood. So of that 1,500 plus, we will have about 80 companies that pitch to investor groups. Okay. And you guys, so all right. All right. Funnel. And of that 80 that pitch to investor groups, 25 to 30 will actually get investment. A year. A year. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's all right. That's pretty heavy. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. That, that, that keeps you guys pretty, pretty damn busy. <laughs> yeah, it does keep us very busy. Uh, what's uh, real quick. And I know you have like Pitch Academy and I mean, we could do a four hour yeah. podcast on uh, advice for founder pitches, but. Ah. Is there just a couple, is there a couple of favorite tips yeah. you want to give right here? If there's a, if there's a couple of founders out there listening and they're pre get preparing for their, their pitch deck and they're getting ready to go ask for some money, any quick, any quick tips you want to give them? The, the, the most important tip is to get engaged in the overall uh, angel community, investors and entrepreneurs. 
get to know that community and get advice very early on that helps you create your business strategy in a way that could appeal to the investor. Uh, and the practical ways to do that, RBC offers a monthly mastermind. Uh -huh. And if, if you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur member of RBC, it's a free event. If you're a non-member, I think it's $25 to sign up for this. It's a couple of hours. Every entrepreneur gets an opportunity to state a current challenge and get feedback both from RBC and from anyone else in the room about how to help them with that challenge. Nice, nice. Okay. Well, you know, what I heard you say there, a, a big piece of what I heard is, hey, you got to build relationships and get early yeah. input, early buy-in. Don't, don't just come in completely cold with your own pitch deck that you've had, you haven't asked anybody for advice. You haven't talked to any of these angel guys ahead of time. And all of a sudden you're, you're pitching, like, don't do that. <laughs> no, it, it's, it, uh, you know, maybe there is one in a thousand that can succeed that way, but for everybody else, it's really hard work yeah. and you yeah. want to get the best possible opportunity. And that means go to the workshops, go to pitch Academy, go to the other workshops on financial strategy, business strategy, term sheets, so that you really do get to know. And those workshops are a combination of entrepreneurs and investors. Mm. So it's an incredible opportunity to get into the mix very easily. What, what's the, um, what, are, what are a couple of common reasons you see consistently on failure of a startup after they got some funding like this from, from RVC? Is it been, uh, do, do you see more commonly that it's, the founders didn't get along or maybe the CEO couldn't get out of his own way or it was just a bad product. What, what, are, what are the common reasons? I, I think there is a, a fairly typical scenario where sometimes founders, particularly if they may be the product innovator, right. may not actually be the best CEO ultimately. Couldn't agree more. And, and, <laughs> And that's one of the bigger challenges. Uh, yeah. I think also one of the things we look for when we're evaluating a venture and a pitch is their go-to-market strategy uh, because they may have the best innovation in the world. The team may be fabulous, but if they really have not through, thought through how to capture customers and increase customers really and scale, that's a typical situation where you see a good idea that just doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. I, t I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You're, you're dead on. I, I see that too. Uh, a founder that was a creator or an inventor oh. or the, or the product person, you know, that, that made the, I don't know, that made the new fancy coffee mug that does something yeah. special. Right. Uh, then they just can't, they just can't their egos or whatever. They just can't get out of the way. I mean, Big, big advice for the listeners, you know, you just surround yourself with people that have skill sets that you don't and, and don't let your ego get out, get in the way of, of, of the company scaling. Yeah. And, and your overall success. Yeah. Right. I mean, big, big time. How about this? Um, I want to ask you, you've, you've been around, you've worked for, you have been yourself and you've seen a ton of CEOs or presidents. Let's just captain, yeah. of, the, captain of the ship, whatever their title is. 
what would you say to somebody listening to this episode that just got that position brand new into the captain's chair first time they're listening to this episode they've been in it for a few months what would you tell them you know i would i would really reflect back on both my experiences working for leaders as well as my own experience as an executive leader and thinking about times when i was more successful in times when I was less successful. And I think the common denominator is listening skills. Yes, please. Thank you. I want to just take a pause right there. I just did a podcast tip episode uh, on this on the Rider Flex podcast just recently. Yes, yes, yes. They spend all this time talking to get to, pr to be promoted. And then once they get promoted, they forget to stop talking and listen to the... Oh, yeah. Sorry. sorry, I don't yeah. mean to, I don't mean to rant on that, but oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, and, and I want to reflect on one one personal experience. Um, I did a startup out in the Bay Area from ninety to ninety four, ninety five, and then I came back and worked for U.S. West again. And I was given an opportunity to take on several parts of U.S. West IT organization that for a variety of reasons had some challenges and problems. And they were in functional domains that I did not have much personal background and experience on. And so I was very clear that I was the new kid on the block relative to that functional area. And my only choice was to listen. Uh, and over i had that that job over five years and gradually increased the size of the organization because uh my boss at the time the cio of us west realized that i was uh fairly good at taking organizations that for whatever reason weren't finely tuned and getting them to a point where there was uh, a better result or better output and because I had a, a five-year tenure in that role and position, I was really able to promote from within. Mm. And the leadership team at the end of that five years was probably one of the most profound and pleasurable and satisfying organizations that I have ever worked with. And to this day, we stay in touch. Um, it, and, you know, we would lay across a railroad tie for each other. That's awesome. And what, whatever the challenge was, we would take it on. And as a team, we'd figure out how to do it. Very good. It was just a phenomenal. And those are rare experiences. They are really, they are. You're right. You know, the listening piece, and that's not really, that's not just for first time CEOs. That's advice for any CEO listening. I mean, even if you've been in the chair for a while, you have to remind yourself, you hired all these expensive executives to be on your leadership team to help you. You know, you have to listen, you have to grab their advice, get their input. It's really bad. I see it pretty common when the CEO was the original founder or, or like you mentioned earlier, was the person that built the product and the original Gosh. founder is still involved. That's when it's really bad. They just, you know, very they, common, you know, they're I, a baby. And, it's the, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you're a mother or a parent, you know, best. And so I, it's very hard to let go of that. 
I had a, uh, I won't mention his name. He's been a guest on the podcast. Uh, he, I was giving him, I was mentoring him a little bit cause I ran a few companies before I started Ryder flex and had some CEO and president experience. And I was having my third breakfast with him and I, I I'll just call him Johnny for this particular exercise. His name's not Johnny. And I said, Johnny, I said, listen, I, I said, I'm going to tell you what your biggest, your biggest opportunity is. You just don't listen. I said, we, I said, this is our third breakfast. You bring me, you, you bring me here for mentoring. That's what the meeting's supposed to be. And 90% of the time you're talking. Yeah. I said, if that's how you're treating your leadership team, you're not going to grow as fast and you're missing, you know, and I gave him the whole speech yeah. about six months later, he, he called me, he goes, man, he goes, I just want to tell you, he goes, that's the, that's the best advice anybody gave me in a long time about being a CEO. And it's really good for the listeners to just, I just want to challenge any CEO listening to this, any president of any company, just monitor yourself in leadership meetings, monitor yourself during touch bases. And just, just to ask yourself, how much are you listening and asking questions versus telling? Uh, and uh, so anyway, <clears throat> um, we're, uh, I, I know we're, we're getting closer to wrap up here and I want to ask you um, a couple of other uh, questions uh, about, just life experiences because you've just had, I mean, like I said, you know, really impressive career. And I, and I admire the fact that you are not just playing golf somewhere or on a cruise ship or on an Island. I mean, you're still just getting up every day, getting after it uh, after this career that you've had, which I really admire. I mean, your energy at this stage in your career is, is uh, exceptional, something to be super proud of. Um, you know, I, I, I am delighted by it, actually. It, it's a, it's a, an artifact, perhaps, of good health. Uh, but it's also, I've tried retiring a couple of times, and it's not nearly as exciting as working with people who are really purpose-driven. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and so I think my good health probably is a result of the opportunity I have to work with incredible colleagues and on important work do you do you know how many people i meet your age that have their linkedin profiles up to date that are still that are still engaged in a job that are still energetic that are still mentoring and motivating and, and oh by the way have the guts to actually put the year they graduated college on their profile do you know how many people i meet like that like oh. nobody <laughs> Nobody, nobody. I love that about you. When I was doing my homework on her, I'm like, look at this, man. I just love her. She's just like, hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm at in life. And I'm still here and I'm still producing. I love it. Um, on that note, if you could call that young lady coming out of, you know, yeah, school of Kansas with that physics degree, by the way, you're, we can't ever we can't ever go to happy hour because your IQ being a physics physics major compared to mine I won't be able to I'll feel like everything I'm saying is, is stupid. No, if you could call if you could call that young lady coming out of um, Kansas KU and tell her anything if you could go back in time and have that conversation call her and say hey Barbara listen what what would you tell her? I, I think one of the most important things. I would say is that life is an experience and you, you 
you should not limit that. And one of the ways in which it's most important to expand that is to travel. And if possible, earlier in your career than I did, I did not live and work abroad until uh, about six years ago. And so I wish I had had that opportunity much earlier in my career mm. because the world is a fascinating and complicated place and you can't read enough to inform yourself about how the world works. You need to go and see it on someone else's turf. I love that. That's really good. I really, I really, that's great stuff. Um, on that note, I recently interviewed somebody that said, Hey, I just lived in a third, a third world country for the last five years and it changed my life. Exactly. No. <laughs> yes. He was, he was, he, he was telling, he was telling me, he's like, for example, when you run out of milk, you just go down to the store and get a gallon of milk and you don't even think about it. He goes, it's not like that everywhere else. No, no. <laughs> And it, when I left my last big corporate job, which was uh, at Storage Tech after they had merged with Sun, I decided I would not go back into a corporate role and I would do international consulting as long as it was about business or education. Love it. And, and I ended up doing just some sort of small gigs in Vietnam mm. and started traveling in, in, in Southeast Asia and ultimately ended up traveling in Myanmar. Love it. And, yeah. and after a few years of doing odd jobs around Southeast Asia, sort of short consulting, I worked for a Norwegian impact investing company for four years in Myanmar, right at the time when all the policy reforms were changing and right in the middle of their first national elections. And uh, it was an extraordinary opportunity to see a country a developing country, very rich in natural resources, but very poor in uh, government processes and support for their citizens and population, and learn about education and healthcare and food supply and economic realities. And of course, on a funny anecdote, the banking system when I moved there was really quite immature. And if you lease an apartment or a flat, you have to pay the rent 12 months in advance in cash. Wow. <laughs> yes, which actually is a huge detriment to small business growth because you have to have the capital up front for 12 months of your lease expense. And so there was a foreign exchange bank there. Uh, I had accounts in the Myanmar currency chat and an account in uh, US dollars. And when I needed to pay the rent on an office or a flat, I would have to take out literally bags full of Myanmar currency and hire these very strong but very small Myanmar young men to physically carry it on their shoulders to wherever I was meeting with the landlord. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was, there, you know, you, you had, I would bring $10,000 in brand new crisp US treasury dollars 
on the plane over to Myanmar, you know, in order to actually fill that bank account. Yeah, if you get a chance to work overseas uh, in some projects like that, yeah, it'll definitely open your eyes to some things for sure. Yes. Uh, I know we only have like six minutes here. I'm gonna ask you one more question. Sure. And I think, I think the answer to this question changes as you move through life. So if you had to define your core purpose in life, as you wake up every day now, um, and you're kind of, you know, we all, we all, I think all of us to some degree, sometimes we have these thoughts like, okay, so what am I doing on this planet? What's my purpose <laughs> at this stage in your career and your life now, how would you define your core purpose? I think I would say what has meant the most to me and been the most satisfying is solving problems. However that might be defined, it can certainly, you know, when I was in school would have been some sort of, you know, homework problem, but in the larger context of working and being part of communities, whether professional communities or neighborhoods or, whatever, it's, I think I'm actually good at taking a look at the sort of situation and figuring out something that I can do that can make it better for that community, whatever that is. Nice, nice. And it, it isn't always a, a very big thing. It's most frequently a fairly small thing. Uh, because I think most progress sort of does occur just one little bit at a time. Isn't that the truth? Very good. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. By the way, if one of your angel investors is having uh, coffee with you and they say, you know, I just want to put a bunch of money into a small recruiting firm. Just will you make sure you mention Rider Flex? <laughs> The Riderflex podcast features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. Our show can be heard just about anywhere these days, but you can visit riderflex.com and click on the podcast page to hear all the previous episodes and learn more about the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Contact us at the email address info at riderflex.com or 888-964-5876. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and like the episodes.